Okay, so I have lately been on this binge train of watching not only Shark Tank, but specifically Shark Tank Australia. And you don't even watch TV. Why do you watch bad TV? Because it's on YouTube, and I can watch 12-minute clips, but what that means is I fall down a YouTube hole, and I look up, and I've been watching Australian Shark Tank for six hours. And let me tell you, I actually enjoy regular Shark Tank. I think it's one of those shows that is mildly interesting enough that you get real drawn in. Australian Shark Tank is bad, um, but it's also wonderful. So, first off, if y'all don't know what Shark Tank is, it's, you know, people come and they're like, look at my invention, and then a bunch of rich people are mean to them, and then give them money. Essentially the premise. Sometimes. They don't always give them money. Yeah, sometimes they're just mean. If they're like, and I invented this uh, straw that's made out of aluminum instead of steel, and they're like, sir, that's already been done, probably. No. Do you have a patent? Well, I get out! But um, <laughs> Australian Shark Tank, two reasons why it's why I think it's bad. So, or a couple reasons. So first off, every time they do a pitch, the the rich people, the sharks, are first off very kind. They always applaud and like, great pitch, great pitch. That was wonderful. Thank you. And I'm like, okay, nice <laughs> rich people. We get it. You have health care. You have less guns. Like, we get it. But you're happy. Um, and then when they go into it, they'll be like, well, my company made $3 million this year. And I'm asking for $12 at 40% of my company. And they'll be like, honestly, your valuation is too high. I might be able to give you $6, but then it's too big of a risk. And for that, I'm out. And then my favorite slash least favorite part is the reasons they decline these offers. They'll have someone who comes up with like this app that is going to solve all global crises. And then someone will be like, for me, I love this. This will change the world. But personally... I don't actually get phone service in this room, so for that reason, I'm out. And I'm just like, what? Is, what am I watching? But clearly, you can't pull yourself away from it. I can't. And also, there's a British version called Dragon Den, and instead of being set in, like, a fake nice office, it's set in, like, a creepy-ass factory, and they take a freight elevator up, and it's just weird. I mean, but, I might be into that one because Dragon's Den sounds really cool. It's the exact same thing. So if you're not into Shark Tank, you would not be into it. <laughs> um, well, hey, good to know that you're at least watching something on TV. That's progress, I guess. I, I guess so. TV Is slash it, your phone. No, it's not. It's I think you're declining <laughs> even further. You're backsliding so freaking far. Because you know what? There's some fantastic things that just came out, like the killer mind of Aaron Hernandez documentary that just dropped uh, recently on Netflix. I watched that like the first night it came out. I'm so fascinated with that case. Yeah, I'm probably not going to watch it. I know. Instead, I'm watching more Australian Shark Tank. Well, listeners, y'all should absolutely check it out. That's a case I really want to cover. But to be totally honest, there is so, so, so much and so many layers to the Aaron Hernandez case and the victims and just trying to tell the whole story. 
I feel like that would have to be one we shared. It's huge. And so listeners, let us know if y'all would be interested in something like that. Yeah, I mean, we haven't done a shared episode since Jonestown, and I thought that was the perfect way to tackle a huge, huge case like that. So 100%. I'm down. Same. Um, well, hello, everyone. This is a Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler, and I still am bad at watching TV. But you know what? That's okay. Yeah, it's fine. Um, also, I know, I think we talked about this um, at the beginning of the year, but I'm just feeling like really compelled to just like give another shout out and thank you to all of our listeners for making 2019 as big as it was. Oh my god. It- 2019 was literally life-changing. Yeah, so we're, like, super excited to see what all happens in 2020. So just quick shout-out to everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Speaking of how amazing and awesome all of you are, I have to shift right into Patreon. And first and foremost, I want to thank one of our newest patrons, Wayne Priest. Thank you so much for joining the Blood and Wine family. Yes, Wayne, thank you so much. Glad to have you a part of the family. If y'all are also interested in joining the Patreon family like Wayne, check out our Patreon. You get access to different murder minis, bunch of different content, and you are directly helping support us, support this podcast, and it's amazing. Also, have not mentioned it in a hot minute, and by that I mean like 15 episodes, but couple of y'all have been asking, we do have our merch store that is live. If you go to our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com, hit that store link. You can see we have different shirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, things like that um, in our logo. So if you see our logo and you're like, fuck, I want that on my body. But tattoos are expensive and I just check out, get a shirt, get a tote, get it on your accessories. Yep, totally do it, you guys. And while you're at it, um, while you're wearing your blood and wine shirt with your blood and wine tote and your hat, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, where you get alerts for all our new episodes when they come out on Tuesdays. So I'm going to jump straight into this topic, and I am just going to warn y'all, this has a strong tendency to be the episode where I get the angriest, because... Fuck this topic, but honestly, fuck that it's not being more well-known. And this is patriarchy murders. Or the idea of the trash men who hate and murder women because they're women. And a big part of that that we're seeing a lot lately, but is definitely not anything new, is stuff like the incel community. I honestly thought, you know, maybe doing that as the title, but... I don't want that kind of traffic. I don't I don't yeah. want that in the title of this. I don't want people who are looking up incel stuff to, I don't know, be a part of it, join it. I'm like, I don't want you here. We don't want your company. Right. And I will say this topic, it, what is so heartbreaking is it wasn't hard to find a case because it's so widespread. Mm. And it's more along the lines of like, which one... You know, which victim do I really want to represent? What topics of conversation do I want to bring up? What do we need to talk about? And so those were the lenses when I was searching for my case, because this is, yeah, like Ty was saying, this is something that needs to be addressed more. It is a thing. And I don't know, I, I feel like we just, it's talked about, but not as much as it should be. Yeah. 
And for those of y'all, a little bit of background on like what incel means, if that's a new term you've heard, it stands for involuntarily celibate, which basically it's this group of men and usually like younger men who feel like they deserve sex or are entitled to sex and are not getting it. And it is the absolute worst, worst type of, you know, the meme fedora milady i'm the perfect guy oh you don't want to date me you're a bitch like that kind of shit it's the absolute cesspool worst worst part of that i mean all of that's fucking horrible but this is people that advocate for rape advocate for torturing women because they feel like they're entitled and i'm like i'm sorry clearly You're a gigantic asshole, and no one wants to fuck you, and that's why. Second, is sex that important? Like, is it really that important that that affects your personality and actions in such a negative way because you're not getting laid? Just go masturbate. You have hands. You can go to a store and buy some toys. What part of you thinks you are entitled to anyone else's body first and foremost but what makes you think you're entitled or deserving of anything i don't give a shit if you actually are a nice person if you're a part of this community you're not yep but let's let's separate it i don't actually care if you are a nice person if you're just a great person if you're the best of the best you're not entitled to shit There's nothing that you deserve simply by being, and especially when that comes from taking from another person. Yeah. So I get very heated over this. And I mean, you totally warned me and listeners that this is a a passion of yours. Like, this is something that does boil your blood and get you real pissed off. So yeah, let it out. I think one of the things that really just drives me crazy is how it's not known. This is a topic I've mentioned to a couple friends today, like, oh, you know, doing this research was really stressful because of this. And a lot of them weren't aware fully or like had the idea of like, oh, it's the guys that, you know, say like, fuck women, but that's it. And I'm like, there's so much more to it. And there are so many cases we see. There was the uh, Isla Vista shooting in California, where that little piece of shit like shot up the town went and shot up a sorority because he was like not getting girlfriends and okay there's a lot of the mass shootings that are related to like these patriarchy type murders the incel groups and communities that that is something that was very prevalent in my research and a lot of the ones where i'm like oh i knew about that shooting i didn't know that was why they did it it that kept popping up over and over and there are just there are so many things and already violence against women is a huge epidemic and something that needs a lot more focus on it These cases in particular, it's so violent, so graphic, and so directly targeted, and they're not being talked about as much, and the awareness is not being spread as much. So, yeah, that is why I chose this topic. Needless to say, this is going to be a heavy episode, and I know I say this every week, but it's always true, but we need some wine, so let's talk about it. Yes, let's. Well, what wine are you drinking today? 
So I'm going to have the 2018 Knoll Haven Merlot from the Waluk. Did I say that right? It's in Washington. The Waluk Slope? Probably. That's that's not a slope I'm familiar with. Oh, well, sorry. But yeah, so it's a Merlot from Washington. And this wine region is in the south central area of Washington. And so it's pretty geographically isolated. It's got um, one of the borders is the Columbia River. Another is the Saddle Mountains and the Hanford Ranch National Monument. It's also one of the warmest regions in the state of Washington. So it's known primarily for all of its red wine grapes. Uh, Particularly, there's some Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Syrah. So these Waluk Slope wines, they tend to be really ripe and full-bodied and very fruit-forward. This wine in particular, this Merlot, it's got a a mild to like medium uh, fruit nose. You've got some raspberry and blueberries playing a part. And then there's a touch of this bitter walnut and a slight mocha towards the end. And it's very smooth throughout with a nice dry finish. Um, This wine, I would say it's people, I read a few reviews and people rated it medium to full bodied. So it's kind of in between the two. And it does pair really nice with a lot of hard cheeses and smoked sausage. Um, And it's a little bit up there. It's $20 a bottle, but I've never had a Merlot from Washington State. I'm used to like... I think I've had one cab, but mostly Pinot Noir because it's up in that that region. I mean, I know it's not Oregon, but it's up there. So I'm looking forward to this Merlot. Actually, I'm lying. I think we have had a Washington Merlot. I don't know. I don't remember. I'm not sure. I'm excited about this wine. It's one that the reviews were saying it pairs really well with dinner. Like if you need a wine that's not going to overpower the flavors Mm. of your food, this is a very complimentary dinner wine or food wine or cheese and crackers wine. Because, I mean, come on, make your own charcuterie board at home. By the way, so much fun to do. Making your own, add those stuffed olives and get some of the mustard seed, mustard stuff, Uh, pickles. I was... I I was talking about that at work today, actually. We had like three of us were talking about just making our own charcuteries and it was just fun and it made me want a lot of cheese. Yes. And I, um, okay, so last episode. Last what? (laughs) Sorry, went Canadian there. Um, So last episode, (laughs) that's, that's how I say that word. I talked about how I accidentally stabbed myself with my wine glass. So what I didn't talk about is how that obviously meant I had to throw the wine glass away. Um, So I bought myself some new wine glasses. And this is super cheesy. I get it. But I bought them from Tiffany & Co. And they're a little bit pricier than I would normally spend for sure on a glass. But it was $25 a glass. I got two. It's their just like classic red, um, red wine crystal glass. And I figured, you know what? God damn it. I drink wine all the time. I should be able to drink it out of a fancy glass if I fucking want to. So tonight... That's what I'm doing, and I have to make sure not to accidentally break this and stab myself with it. That's fair. Um, you can also get a very fancy wine glass from Crate and Barrel for seven bucks. Also, 
Um, honestly, with all of the Pier 1 imports closing down, like, half their stores, Shit. bet you can find some cheap wine glasses. Well, and they have really nice ones, like, lots of different shapes. Same with Crate and Barrel. And I'm just, like I said, most of my wine glasses, like, the beautiful ones, Tyler actually got them for me, like, my goblet wine glasses, were, like, six bucks a piece. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that was one of the ones I lost in the, the, the incident, and so I only have one now. But... I just felt like I've looked at these literally for probably like 10 years. I've been like, oh, that would be really cool to have. And it's your basic bowl shape. It's not, there's nothing fancy about it, but it's got a really nice thin stem. And you know what? Treat yourself. Yeah. And so now I'm going to treat myself with this Merlot. Do it. And this one does have a cork. Um, So I'm getting into that. Ooh, it's kind of a squeaky cork. Got it. Nice. That was squeaky. It was. It was definitely in there. Also, you look at the label, it kind of reminds me of, um, like, Duckhorn or something. Sure. Anyway. Oh, God. Okay. Thirsty. (laughs) I didn't didn't pour as much as that sounded like I did. (laughs) Okay. Well, while that breathes, um, what wine are you doing? Today, I am drinking the 2018 La Granja 360 Carignana Tempranillo Granacha blend from Spain. Yum. So, honestly, it sounds right up your alley. Uh, yeah, which is why when I saw it, I was like, totally getting it. I got <laughs> this one at Trader Joe's, and it's one, if you shop at Trader Joe's and get wine, it has like a zebra on it, and like half of the zebra has red stripes. You've probably seen it. It's in the Spain section. It's wonderful. So La Granja 360 in Spanish means the farm 360, which I didn't know that was how you uh, say farm in Spanish. I always uh, thought it was Hacienda, which I think they both mean farm, but so I don't know. Spanish speaking listeners help me. But La Granja 360, it means the farm 360 in Spanish. And it is located in the very traditional Tempranillo and Granacha grape-growing wine region in the north of Spain. And this wine, it is cherry red in color. It has these red fruity aromas. It's very full of flavor with an earthy nose in a good way. Has these nice flavors of raspberry and some very nice mellow tannins. And it also has this velvet finish because it spends two months oak aging. It matches really well with grilled red meats, pastas, pizzas, and manchego cheese. And honestly, I've talked about it before, Tempranillo is my number one favorite uh, varietal of wine. I think a Tempranillo Granacha blend sounds perfect. And I'm sure I've had one before, but I can't think of it. So I would pair this with literally anything and everything. Also, it's 13.5%, which I'm like, yes. And the best part, it was $5. Love it. Honestly, you could get four bottles of that one for the price of one of mine. I know. You went a little pricey. I did not. And it's a screw cap, so. I love that zebra. Same. Well, give it a pour. Yours is also doing the thing where it's, like, glugging out. Yeah, but I also pour a ton into my glass (laughs) always because I am a thirsty bitch. (laughs) I mean, you're just, as long as you're willing to admit it, that's what matters. 
Also, if anyone can find a wine glass that is engraved with thirsty bitch on it, I will buy that right now. <laughs> Please email us at bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. All right, well, cheers. Cheers. Oh my god, mm. that is so smooth. You know how Merlots, they used to not be my favorite, but I think it's because I wasn't drinking good Merlots. This is definitely a good Merlot. It is fruit forward for sure, but it's not, I don't feel like I'm eating a bowl of like berries. Um, hmm. It's got like that tinge of mocha at the very end, which I think adds to the smoothness. Yeah. Um, it is drier, which also makes it not too fruit heavy because it doesn't have that sweetness from the fruit. It's got a dry finish. I think this is a really good, like, coming home from work and you really want a glass of wine. This is a great one for that. Um, great with dinner because, again, it's not going to overpower your foods. And if you're, you know, not in the mood for something like a Cab Franc that's, like, going to punch you in the face, um, this one is going to, like, kiss you on the cheek. Yeah, this one is wonderful. It very much has the nice... Very middle-of-the-road fruit flavors that you would expect from a Tempranillo, but it's a little bolder, a little more rounded out. I think that's probably the Grenache. And then it has that nice little twinge of oak at the end, because of the two months it spent doing that thing. I don't know if two months is a long time. It doesn't sound like a long time. But really what I want with this is a big-ass bowl of olives. That sounds amazing. And speaking of which, let me tell you, I cannot believe I've waited this long to tell you the best news what? that has happened to me in a long time. They started stocking olives in our break room at work, little like individual packages. There's one that's like basil and garlic green olives. And there's one that's black olives, so fuck those. But <laughs> the basil and garlic green olives. Oh my god. Uh, if y'all have seen these, they have them at like... I don't know, Trader Joe's stores, but they're little like individual packets of olives. There's like 10 in there. It's so great. I love the little things that make you happy when you're older. Um, That sounds phenomenal. And you kept saying olives and I can't stop thinking about like the garlic stuffed olives. Oh my God. I also love the blue cheese stuffed olives. I know you're not a fan no. of those, but listeners, if you like blue cheese, they have blue cheese stuffed ones or even jalapeno stuffed mm. ones. I like stuffed olives, you guys. Stuff it with anything and I'll give it a try, maybe. Well, speaking of olives and stuffing, did you know that in ancient Greek and ancient Rome, olive oil was used as lube? <laughs> Honestly, Olive oil is um, can be used as moisturizer for your face now or as an oil cleanser. I know it sounds weird, but it's really good for your skin. Well, I mean, people use coconut oil for like everything now. And I'm like, olive oil's always been there for us. Get your little Bertoli bottle and just do whatever you want in the privacy of your own home. Um, yeah. Maybe buy better olive oil than Bertoli, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that's uh, quite interesting, but oil is amazing and you know the most random shit ever but thank you for keeping me forever entertained with your random knowledge Listen, i really I'm love just it <laughs> i'm preparing you i'm preparing our listeners for one day that we're on jeopardy and it's, it'll be like doo -doo 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 -doo. this product a main export of california was used as a lubricant in ancient european times did it uh alex what is olive oil 
<laughs> hey, it could happen. Do, 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 daily double. <laughs> anyway, um, it's so true. But now we've got our wine. We've had our um moment to, you know, enjoy it. And now it's time to get into this really heavy topic. So I'm yeah. going to jump in my case. Okay. Tell me uh, what case you are covering today. So I will be talking about the murder of Ruth George. My sources that I used, an article from the Chicago Tribune by Megan Crapu, an article from Time by Kate Riley, an article from CBS News by Sophie Lewis, and an article from CBS Chicago by Charlie DeMar. Ruth George was a 19-year-old sophomore who was studying kinesthesiology. That's like exercise science, right? Yeah, it is. Um, And she was at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She was an honor student, and she was really focused on her studies, and she dreamed of becoming a physical therapist uh, because she really wanted to heal people. She was always there to lend a hand to her peers, and a lot of them, they would seek her out because of how compassionate she was for others. So she is literally just, you know, Ruth is that go-to person. She's always there for you. She's there to help. She's extremely dedicated to her studies. She's kind of like your rock star student that everyone looks up to, and they're like, God, I wish I could be like Ruth, or how does Ruth do it? Or, I need help, I'll go ask Ruth. Not trying to take advantage of her, just because, like, you know she's genuinely going to want to help you. And, like, be your study buddy and be there for you. I don't like this already because she reminds me of my best friend. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think she reminds a lot of us of some people we've all been really close to. So, late at night on Saturday, November 23rd, 2019, Ruth and... yeah, Recent. Very, very recent. Um, Ruth and a friend had gotten back to campus in a lift. They had been at a semi-formal for their co-ed professional fraternity. And so they got back to campus, just took the lift there because they both, you know, kind of need to be back in that general area. There's a surveillance video later from across the street. It would show Ruth and her friends saying their goodbyes and going their separate ways. At this time, Ruth's friend walked back to her dorm room, and Ruth walked to the university parking garage where she'd left her car. About 47 seconds after Ruth was seen from a distant camera walking um, into the parking garage, you can see this guy in the background. He's got this puffy white jacket on, and he crosses the street, and he's going into the same garage. And this is about 1.35 a.m. So it's late. You know, if you yeah. if you think about it, they went to like this Friday night semi-formal. They're getting back to campus. Um, they're obviously like clear-headed enough. Uh, her friend just walks to the dorm. Ruth doesn't live in the dorm. She lives with her family. And so she goes to her car where she'd left it in the garage. This is honestly a night that I'm like, yeah, I did that all the time. Like that's yeah. that's called going to some type of party and if it's not like a a drinking party or whatever and you could get in your car and drive home like you have to go home at the end of the night Ugh. and then your story ends with she gets in her car goes home and continues her education today she's a physical therapist he was also just getting into his car and was unrelated completely i really wish i could tell you that that is how this story ended but it's not and i think you know that i know This man sees Ruth, and he first tries to talk to her, but she just keeps walking. 
Because again, it's 1.30 in the morning and some dude in this like puffy jacket is trying to talk to you. Like, no. No. I mean, whether he's in a puffy jacket or not, but no. So he follows her into the garage, like I said, and he's he's still trying to talk to her. She's doing nothing, just proceeding to her car. Next, he catcalls her and she ignores him and continues walking. So at this point in time, he's getting really pissed. And so when Ruth finally does arrive to her car, he's enraged that he's being ignored. It blows my fucking mind that men will get pissed at women for not talking to them or not smiling at them. Like, again, fuck you. They don't owe you anything. But also, bitch, it's 1.30 in the morning. I don't want to talk to anyone at 1.30 in the morning, especially if I'm sober. She's walking her car. She's probably like, oh my god, that fraternity party, super fun. I love talking. It's a business fraternity, so it's a bunch of nerds like me just doing our thing. But bitch, it's 1.30. I want to go home. I want to binge girls. I... No, don't talk to me. Leave me the fuck alone. Especially a creepy fucker alone in a parking garage with you. Right. Well, and the other thing is, you mentioned, like, they get pissed when women don't smile at them. One thing that I don't completely understand is why we as Americans, for the most part, feel obligated to smile when we, like, accidentally make eye contact with someone from across the street or something, or, like, passing by when you're walking walking in opposite directions. Like, yeah. And you're you're looked at as rude if you don't smile. And I'm like, dude, I'm doing my thing. You're doing your thing. Unless we're going to stop and, like, have a meet cute, I don't really need to be smiling at you. I also don't want to have a meet cute because, no. But also, on the subject of American smiling, I think one of the funniest things that has been pointed out to me is the white people smile. <laughs> what? When you, like, it's... <laughs> It's a thing white people do that my friend was telling me about. And when we like, I don't know, at the office or whatever, it's this. <laughs> where oh my God. I, I know y'all can't see us, but where you just like lips together. I don't know. It's like I, a, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a grimace. Like you're kind of clenching your teeth smile. Like, yep, I'm fucking here too. Hey. Yeah. It, <laughs> And it's fucking hilarious because <laughs> she came up to me and she was like, so question, do you do the white people smile? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you know, a, a coworker or something, you know, passes by, you make eye contact. How would you smile at them? And I did it. And she was like, that, that is the white people smile. <laughs> and I thought it was fucking hilarious. And then I started noticing it. And then I started noticing how I do it all the time. Oh my god, I am so excited to recognize this tomorrow. So when I start busting out laughing in the middle of the meeting, I'm going to have to explain to everyone about the white people smile. <laughs> and then you'll have a real smile. Um, with laughs. So, no, I actually, it was pointed out to me how much Americans feel the need to smile at strangers uh, when I was in a French course in college. And my teacher, who was French, uh, she was an exchange student, and she was telling it like she was a graduate assistant, student, teacher, yeah. like all the words, student, but also teacher. And she was telling us how people perceive France as rude because they don't smile. And she's like, 
we're not rude. We just, why, why are you guys smiling all the time? Why do you smile at someone you don't know? Like, what is the point? And honestly, it's not rude not to smile. Like, she said that and it just opened my eyes. Now, I'm still saying, I still smile, but apparently I do the white people smile. Um, I'll still smile at people that I see because for me, it's, I feel really awkward. Like, oh shit, we made eye contact. I would really rather pretend I'm not walking by anyone right now and we saw each other. Or especially when it's a coworker and y'all are coming down like a long hallway and you know you're going to pass each other and it's at like, okay, shit, at what point do we acknowledge that we see each other? You kind of like look down if you've decided you're not going to talk to the other person and they do the same and you just kind of like speed walk by each other. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I work in an office. I, I sometimes occasionally walk past people. Um, see, my go-to is the head bop, the, and then I, oh, I just, if it's someone on my team, I sing people's names as I walk by. I'll just be like, Danielle, and walk by. You're so weird. Jonathan. <laughs> That's, it, it's my thing. All right. Well, like I said, don't feel the need to smile at people, but also, no. dudes, don't get pissed if someone ignores you. Just walk on. Unfortunately, that's not what this guy does. So he comes up behind Ruth, grabbed her around the neck from behind, and puts her in a chokehold. So with his arm still wrapped around her neck, he then drags her um, into her car. At this point, she had become unconscious. So he throws her in the back seat, face down, and that's where he sexually assaulted her while she was unconscious. So... Ruth's family, they started to get worried when she never came home. You know, they know she they knew she was at a party, so it's like, okay, maybe she stayed with someone. But around eleven AM on Saturday, they were like, No, we would have heard from her. So they reported her missing. Her sisters reached out to her friends, and that's when her friends did like the find a friend on the cell phone, which by the way, if you don't have that turned on for at least like two or three friends, please turn it on. It's a very important thing to have. And I mean, do it with your close friends where it's okay them knowing wherever you are. Like they're not going to be sitting there creeping on you all the time, but seriously, it's a good way to quickly find someone. So her, they did the find a friend. And they found that Ruth's phone could be tracked to the UIC parking garage. So the sisters asked the police if they would accompany them to the scene. They didn't really know what they were going to come across. They didn't know if someone was going to be there. You know, they're just taking all, all precautions. When they arrived, they discovered Ruth's body in the back seat of the family's white Kia. She was cold to the touch and completely unresponsive. Police ended up finding drag marks from her shoes and her fingers on the scene, and the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office ruled her death a homicide by strangulation. So that chokehold that he put her in was not one of those quick 10-second, I-just-want-you-to-pass-out chokeholds. He, strang yeah. he strangled her. Three days later, the university ended up having a gathering on campus in remembrance of Ruth, uh, students and faculty mourned her death, and they all remembered her as a young woman who had so much potential. This really impacted the campus because, like I said, this was a very normal Friday night activity for someone to be going home from a party. That mm -hmm. is literally some people's every Friday night, or Thursday night, or Saturday night, or Tuesday night because it's college. And she was on campus somewhere where I'm sure she felt safe. 
campuses yeah. for the most part. Um, I mean, I, and I cannot say this for all campuses, but mine felt safe even at night. I walked around campus yeah. at 2 a.m. It was no big deal, even if I was by myself. And I'm sure Ruth had a similar feeling. Although, listeners, if you know what the um, University of Illinois at Chicago is like and it's not like that, let me know because I really don't know what that campus is like. But again, this was her school's parking garage where her car was parked, what I'm guessing, like all the time. So. Yeah. Well, and I feel like a lot of college campuses, especially now, have um, safety features. I mean, we both went to OU and every hundred feet or so, there's those like police buttons where if someone's following you, you just press the button and it notifies police. And then if, you know, you press another one, they'll be able to track you. And then when I worked at the university in like a fundraising way, one of the things that we raised a lot of money for that was like really important to me and to a lot of us was the like safe walk program where you could call or text a number a volunteer would meet you and then walk you to your dorm, to the library, whatever, any time of day, no charge, just so you have that extra thing. But I know for me personally, I never used either of those because, I mean, regardless, I always just felt safe. Yeah, I never used those either. And I was trying to look it up. There's some movie that I can literally see in my head but it's a movie where someone's like being attacked or murdered or something's happening on campus. And one of the people hits that blue light, like emergency thing. And the police will arrive really soon. And I get that it's a movie. Maybe it's like one of the final destinations. I don't know. But it's one of the only times I've seen those portrayed in like TV or film. Because mm -hmm. I don't know how known they are like if you are on a college campus that has those you know about them yeah so unfortunately you know ruth was murdered and a 26 year old man named donald thurman who lives near the university on monday november 25th so the first monday after the murder he was charged with first degree murder and aggravated assault in the death of 19 year old ruth george at the University of Illinois at Chicago. During their investigation, detectives had recovered a palm print from Ruth's car that matched Thurman, and they um, went to Thurman's home and they saw the jacket, this very distinctive puffy white jacket that he was seeing, seen wearing on the surveillance video. They also tracked his travel patterns, and they found him near the Blue Line train station, and that was the same, like, train station that he had most likely gotten off of to go to campus and where he saw Ruth. So they found him at the station and that's where they took him into custody. So Thurman was not affiliated with the university at all and he did not know Ruth at all. He quickly confessed to the crime and he said he knew that his DNA would be all over the scene. He then explains why he did what he did and he said that he saw her and he thought she was pretty, and he wanted to talk to her. And honestly, I grit my teeth so much because that's his first sentence. I'm like, I'm sorry. You, it, to me, it sounds like you're trying to put blame on her. Yeah. For, for you thinking she's pretty and wanting to talk to her. So before he ever even gets to the, and I got mad because she didn't want to talk to me. It's like he starts with her in the story and not even himself. And it's like, dude, you're the one that fucking did this. 
she had no reason to like you, no reason to talk to you, no reason to want any fucking thing to do with you. You're a fucking stranger to her. And even if she knew you, she she owes you fucking nothing. Nope. So he admits when he's talking to police that he got angry when Ruth was ignoring him and his cat calls. And that's when he follows her into the garage. As it turns out, Thurman was on parole after serving two years for arm for an armed robbery conviction um, that happened in 2016. And he actually snatched an iPhone out of a woman's hands and then he fled in her stolen car. And so that's what he was in jail for. And he had been released from prison in December 2018. So about a year before this happened. Judge Charles Beach II ordered that Thurman be held in custody without bail. And so that's where he is now. Um, He faces up to life in prison if he's convicted of first-degree murder and criminal sexual assault. And I know this is a very recent case, but this is something that I felt was a very important case to talk about. And Ruth is a victim that a lot of us women and men can see ourselves in. She is just your average college girl. I mean, she's above average, but she is a college student. And she was just having a normal Friday night getting home from a party. And she didn't make it home. And it's all because this jackass thought he deserved something from her. Whether it was a conversation, sex, whatever. I did read something that, like, he denied having sex with her. He said he did assault her, but that he never had sex with her. But they found a used condom in her car. So it's just like, I hate to even say this, but this could almost be any of us. And so it's just um, something I wanted to make everyone aware of, of of how we talk about all of these cases. So Sorry, I'm going a bit on a soapbox. No, 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 go. But we talk about all of these cases and they're like, and then this happened and then this happened. And there's all these horrible things and it's like rare things. But this one is not as rare and it's not mm. as, uh, he li- he just literally overpowered her and strangled her. And it's, again, like we talked about this topic, I feel like this is something there needs to be more awareness of. Because this isn't fair at all. No murder is ever fair. But I just, I hurt at how this is just an average day. And it ended in her death. So that's the murder of Ruth George. And if we do find some updated information, I, I still don't even have a trial date for this guy yet. He, like I said, he's being held in custody without bail. And this has been for the last, like, almost two months. It hadn't even been two months. And so... There will be more information that comes out. Um, I'll try to keep you guys updated if you're interested in hearing that and seeing what happens. But I, I really do hope that he gets placed back in prison. He needs to do time because he clearly did not rehabilitate in his time there. Yeah. No, he needs to be there forever. You're right. This is an insanely difficult topic, but um, it's it's your turn. What's your case? So the case that I'm doing is the... École Polytechnique Massacre, also known as the Montreal Massacre. I hate that word, massacre. Me too. I hate this case. I also really hate that I did not know a lot about this case before really diving into it. I'd heard of it. I'd like seen something in the news a few years ago and then kind of looked a little more into it. 
but it is a case that is Canadian. I'm not Canadian, so I know it's bigger there and had a lot of impact that I will go into. But again, I think it's something that it's really shameful that it's not more well-known. So the sources I used, an article from North Country Public Radio by James Morgan, the Wikipedia page for the École Polytechnique Massacre, an article from the Canadian Encyclopedia by Stephanie Lantier, an article from The Guardian by Tracy Lindemann, and an article from The Conversation by Melissa Blay and Francis dupuis derry I'm going to go very French here, y'all, because it's in Montreal. Do it. So a little bit after 4 p.m. on December 6th of 1989, Marc Lepin had arrived at the building that housed the École Polytechnique, which is an engineering school that's affiliated with the Université de Montréal. And he walked into this university college armed with a semi-automatic rifle and a hunting knife. Oh my god. Oh yeah, I'm just going there. Oh, y'all couldn't see my face, but I, like, literally, my eyes got huge. Because, yeah, literally, first line of your fucking case, and you said semi-automatic and hunting knife. Yeah. And this is another, um, I've talked about it before, I've done a couple cases on it. Mass shootings are my least favorite. They're ones that terrify me more than most. I think one of the reasons they're so terrifying is that is because they keep happening and it increases the likelihood that you could be involved in one. I am not trying to be like a scare tactic or whatever, but that is our reality. It could Mm -hmm. happen anywhere and at any time. I mean, exactly. Like in your case with Ruth, one of the scariest parts of it is that that could be anywhere and anyone. And that happens all the time. And I think that's in that same train of thought is why mass shootings are so scary to me because by nature could happen anywhere at any time. Well, and it goes along with, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it comes back. Um, I, I wrap it all back into what we're talking about here. This fascination that a lot of people have with true crime and especially women, it all goes back to this idea of preparedness. And we mm-hmm. want to know what happened. We want to know what's out there because it better arms us to protect ourselves in the face of these situations because what is so scary is that the more you read about it, the more you dive into true crime, the more common you realize these things are. It's horrifying. I mean, honestly, part of me wants to do a test and like do tally marks for a week of how many times either a death or a shooting, like murder type death, pops up on my newsfeed just in the Dallas area because it's all the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. Yeah. But it's cases just like these two that we've done that show how everyone should just try to be prepared as best you can, but also don't live your life in fear, if that makes sense. It is a it is a fine balancing act, but we can all do it. Yeah. Well, and I think a big part of it is also the being more aware and um, I don't want to say knowing the terror, but being more familiarized with it in the safety of your own home or your own car. You know, you're hearing it through a podcast or watching it on TV. You're not actually in danger, but you're still getting this information. You know, you're seeing these things through the victim's eyes and being empathetic with them 
and having that in the safety of your place. You know, you have the the control over it in that way. And I think that's a huge part of it. And I think that's a huge benefit and a big reason why true crime has really uh, taken off as a genre. I that you said that very well. I 100% agree. So mic drop. Mic drop. And with that, pick pick your mic back up and um, finish your very unfortunate case. Okay. Or begin, because you really just started. I, yeah. So Lepin, he first sat in the office of the registrar that's on the second floor. And he's sitting there a while. And a couple people saw him. He's rummaging through a plastic bag. And remember, this is like four, a little after four in the afternoon. So... There's classes going on, you know, there's people working there. But he didn't speak to anyone, and a staff member even went up to him and was like, hey, can I help you? And he just didn't even acknowledge her. A little bit after that, he got up, left the office, and then he kind of just started walking around the building. He was seen by a couple people before he went into a mechanical engineering class that was on the second floor. And in this class, there's about 60 students, and at this time, it's about 5.10 p.m. He walks into this classroom and approaches a student who's, like, at the front giving a presentation. And then he tells everyone to stop what they're doing, and he ordered the women to line up on one side of the room and the men on the other, like, to get against the walls. And at first, no one does anything because they're thinking it's some kind of weird joke or whatever, and then he fires a shot into the ceiling, oh, shit. and they realize he's serious. He then separated the nine women from the 50 men, and then he ordered the men to leave. Brittany just gave me a very shocked look at the numbers, but this is the 80s and a mechanical engineering. This is women pursuing a degree in STEM where, at the time, it's not status quo. And it's better today, but not the same. It's something that's not encouraged of young women. And like, fuck, y'all. It should be. There's literally no reason. But getting back into my case, he lines them up and he tells the men to leave. He asked the women if they knew why they were there. And one of the students tells him no. And he says, I'm fighting feminism. What? Yeah, he's absolute trash. You don't fight that. You support that. Fuck this guy. Oh, he's absolute fucking garbage. I'm also just like anyone who's against feminism. Who are it's you? Literally, a, like g- gender equality. Like, how is that something that you can actually be against? That's not something I understand. It's literally, it's one of those um, concepts that is so foreign to me that I don't know how you get there. Yeah, you know there are so many. Of those types of topics where that is my thought. Like, I don't know how we got here. Or I don't know how we haven't moved on from here. I feel mm-hmm. like I think those two things far too often on a daily basis. Agreed. One of the students, Nathalie Povos, she said to him, Look, we're just women studying engineering. We're not necessarily feminists ready to march on the streets to shout we're against men. We're just students intent on leading a normal life. And he responded to her, you're women, you're going to be engineers, you're all a bunch of feminists, and I hate feminists. And then he opened fire on them. Oh, God. And they were all lined up? This is like a fucking execution by firing squad. Yeah. 
He killed six, and the other three were wounded, including Provost. She survived. She was one of the three wounded. He then left the room, and he continued into the second floor corridor, and he wounded three students before he entered another room where twice he tried to shoot a female student, but his gun didn't fire. It failed. So when that didn't happen, he jumped to the, like, emergency staircase, which I'm assuming is like a, um, like a New York... A fire escape. Fire escape? Yeah. That's the word. I'm not sure. Or he may have left the room and it may have been just like a stairwell. Right. But that's where he reloaded the gun and he returned to the room, but the students had closed and locked the door. And he shot at the lock three times, but it didn't break. It didn't open. So he wasn't able to get back into that room. I'm really glad that lock was so secure. I'm really impressed, actually. So he continues walking down the hallway. He shot a couple other people, wounded one. um, And then he moves into the financial services office there in the building. And that was where he shot and killed Melis Lagonier. Um, through the window of a door that she had just locked. So she was like in an office, closed it, locked it, and he shot her through the little window in it. God. He then went downstairs to the first floor cafeteria, and in that there were about a hundred people. He shot a woman who was standing near the kitchens, and when that happened, I mean, it's just panic. Everyone started running, and he wound up wounding another student. And then he keeps walking in, and he enters a storage area that's unlocked at the end of the cafeteria. And he shot and killed two more women that were hiding there. So he walks over to these two students that are hiding under a table, and he tells them to come out from out of the table. They'll be fine. They do, and they neither of them were shot. Oh, I thought he was going to shoot them anyway. Yeah, me too. I feel like they were under that table being like, well, we could not move and definitely be shot, or we could move and probably be shot. Let's go ahead and move. Yeah. So he then leaves the cafeteria. He walks up an escalator to the third floor, where he shot and wounded a woman and two male students that were in the corridor. Okay, so he really seems like he's getting around this building. How much time is going by at this point? Like, where are security and police? And because with all this commotion, I would hope someone was able to um, call 911. I mean, I don't know, because everyone's trying to not get shot, but I would hope word's gotten out. It has. So this entire um, scenario that um, I'm going through is about 20 minutes. And at this point, police are there. They're just setting up a perimeter. Someone called police. Good. Um, and this was the 80s. I don't think most people had cell phones. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. I keep... Sorry. Again, like I said, because of how many shootings are so recent, I keep forgetting this is happening in the 80s. In my head, I'm picturing it present time. Yeah. But also, remember, it's at a college that's not only classrooms and stuff, but offices. There are phones. There are lots of phones everywhere. Yeah. So someone was able to call the police, but they're right now outside just setting up a perimeter. Not to dog on police. 
this is obviously a horrifying situation, and I am not a trained police officer. I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but... Well, I, I don't think you... You can't yeah. run in the building and start also shooting around, because they, no. you know, like, they have to identify the suspect know where they are like their location all of these things also not a trained officer but just like trying to look at like a, from a planner's perspective you need to know what type of situation you're going into otherwise it's too early to go into that situation and i do realize that can be difficult to understand because there are victims that are being currently victimized but going in without a plan results in the potential for more casualties than going in yeah. with a plan so it ugh, absolutely it is literally being placed between a rock and a hard place and no matter what decision you make there is some wrong in it yeah so he'd gone up the escalator he's now on the third floor he enters a classroom and there's three students that are giving a presentation and he tells them to get out he then shoots and wounds Maurice Leclerc who she was standing on the in the front of the classroom. And he then starts firing on students that are in the front row. And then he kills two women that try to escape the room. At this time, other students are diving under their desks. And he moves towards a couple um, female students, wounds three of them, and kills one. And then he changes the magazine in his gun that has all the bullets. He moves to the front of the class and just starts shooting in all directions. At this point, Marie Leclerc, who he shot in the beginning, she's wounded. She's asking for help. He pulls out his hunting knife and stabs her to death. He then takes off his hat, wraps his jacket around his gun, and just says, ah, shit, and then shoots himself in the head. Oh, I did not see this going that way. All of that happened in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So 14 women were killed that day. They were Genevieve Bergeron, Helene Cogan, Nathalie Crotal, Barbara Daganau, Anne-Marie Edward, Maude Havernick, Barbara klusnik Vidaljevisk, Maurice Laganier, Maurice Leclerc, Anne-Marie Lemay, Sonia Pelletier, Michel Richard, Annie Saint-Anon, and any Turkle. And I deeply apologize if I mispronounce any of those names. French is not a language I am familiar with, but I did want to name everyone. Yeah. And I, I would say I would be shocked I hadn't heard of this, but also I will give both of us a little leeway because it did happen in the 80s. And I'm not trying to go research a ton of shootings. Like, we've had the conversation mm -hmm. of that that is not one of our favorite topics to cover because it's something that's still so prevalent. But we do cover it because it's something still so prevalent. Like, it is a double-edged sword type of situation. And um, also, I want to say there's no topic we like covering. Um, True. This is all, like, horror and awareness and preparedness. Oh, no, absolutely. So, inside Lepin's jacket... He had a suicide letter and then two letters to friends that had all been dated on the day of the massacre. And two days after, uh, some of the details from his suicide letter were uh, revealed by police, but the full text was not disclosed. And the media went to the police and wanted them to release this, but 
they didn't. A year after the attacks, though, his three-page statement was leaked to a feminist journalist, Francine Pelletier, and it contained a list of 19 women in Quebec that he wanted to kill because he considered them feminists. And that list included Francine. She was on it. The journalist who found it or uncovered it somehow? Yeah, the journalist who it was leaked to, she was on it. Oh my god, which maybe is how it was leaked to her. Maybe. I don't know. But it also included a union leader, a politician, a TV personality, and six police officers who had come to his attention because they'd been on the same, like, volleyball team. So I imagine, like, a police volleyball... League? Uh, league. Yeah. Yeah, that's the word. The letter, without the names of the women, she removed that. But the in letter in its entirety, she published in the newspaper La Croise, um, where she was a columnist. In his letter, he wrote that he considered himself rational and he blamed feminists for ruining his life. He outlined his reasons for his attack and they included his anger towards feminists for seeking social changes that, quote, retain the advantages of being women while trying to grab those of men. I fuck you, dude. If only my facial expressions could be heard, because I literally, it's all I'm doing. Your whole case, my face is so scrunched and pissed and shocked and, like, literally, are you kidding me? Yeah. I think your face is pretty well saying, fuck you. In all the ways it ever could. Yeah. Because, like I've mentioned before, and I don't know if I was, it was on the podcast where I was just talking to Brittany, but... Y'all, privilege is not a pie. Just because someone gets more does not mean you get less. We definitely talked about- rights, or- Yeah, we talked about that on the podcast for sure, because that is, to this day, one of my favorite things we've ever said, because it's like, so- It's one of those things that I'm like, how is this not common sense? But that is a rabbit hole we are not going to go down. Agreed. So, his full letter- You can find it online in both French and English, but personally, I don't want to read it. And I totally understand if you do, because we always want to know the why, or get behind the eyes of the killer and see their reasoning, see their thought process. And honestly, I can totally see how uh, reading this, diving into it, doing your own research can feel like taking back, and I absolutely uh, support you, listeners, if that's what you want to do. But with this platform, with this being a podcast, I don't want to give him any more attention or spotlight. He was a piece of shit. He was an incel monster, and he's not important. The victims are who's important here, not him. So I don't want to read his letter on this or go into it. I agree. Um, And I will say, you mentioned the why, and I feel like in every case, no matter what the case is, that's always the big question. And a lot of the times we don't know it. Even if we have straight up evidence, it doesn't mean it answers the why. Yeah. So 
the injured and a lot of the witnesses that were stabbed at the university or students, they suffered a lot of different physical, social, existential, financial, and psychological consequences. Some of them had PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. A number of students even completed suicide, and in their suicide letters, at least two of them referred to the anguish that they suffered after the massacre as a reason for killing themselves. And years after the event, survivors reported still very much being affected by their experiences. I don't know how anyone could go through that situation and not have some level of PTSD. Yeah. So this event, which became known colloquially as the Montreal Massacre, it sent shockwaves through Quebec and the rest of Canada. In the days and weeks after, there was widespread public debate that focused on, you know, what caused this, what was the motive, the why. And for some, this was just like a very isolated act. There wasn't social significance. It was just this crazy guy who shot up a school. But for a lot of others, it revealed this very profound malice and hate about the place of women in Quebec society. And a lot suggested that it was indicative of this deep-rooted and widespread anti-feminist sentiment. Which, yeah, I think for a lot of mass shooters in particular, I find it very hard to believe the, like, full lone wolf of, like, this was one person who came up with these ideas and was very self-indoctrinated and did this. I'm like, no, there's a community of support that gave him the entitlement and uh, the structure to believe that he was right. Yep. I I mean, I don't even really have any commentary. I agree. So the massacre led to pretty large debates about violence against women and stricter gun control laws in Canada. So even before 1986, Canada has always had pretty strict gun laws. Open carry and gun use for self-defense and stuff, it wasn't as much of a thing and wasn't really allowed in a lot of places like we would be familiar with in the U.S. A handgun registry existed since 1934, and automatic weapons had been registered since 1951. Wow. That's just always been a thing. And every gun owner and user was required to complete a uh, safety course and obtain a license since 1977. So in Canada at this time, school shootings, they didn't really happen. They were very rare, and there'd only been two, both of them in 1975, and neither of which had as many deaths. And while Canada, you know, did have pretty, these strict laws, there was never any reason to discuss, like, making them stricter or doing other things, because shootings like that were an American thing, not a Canadian thing. So in 1991, two years later, mostly because of what happened here, The federal government made major changes to their gun laws. Permits to buy ammunition were now required, and certain military-style weapons were now banned. And handgun magazines were limited to 10 rounds, which means it had 10 bullets in it. That was it. You couldn't do the 
you know, just firing over and over. Right. And since 1991, the anniversary of the massacre has been designated the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women in Canada. And also in 1991, 1991 had a lot of big things happen. Yeah, this after is like this. the third time you've said 1991. So. A white ribbon campaign was launched by a group of men in London, Ontario. And the purpose of this was raising awareness about the prevalence of male violence against women. And the white ribbon symbolized the idea of men giving up their arms. And even to today, commemorative demonstrations are held across the country every December 6th in memory of the victims. Wow. and. Numerous different memorials have been built across the country. Amazing. The main one is in Montreal. It's just a few blocks from the school. And it's kind of the centerpiece for a lot of demonstrations that happen December 6th. So on the 25th anniversary, the commemorative ceremony in 2014, 14 searchlights that represented the 14 victims were installed on Mount Royal that's just about a half mile east of the school, and it's what Montreal is named after. Yeah. It's the mountain on the island. And they were turned on at the exact time when the attack started 25 years earlier. Are they still there? I think so. That's beautiful. So, moving backwards five years, in December of 2009, there was a big movement for this massacre to be considered an anti-feminist terrorist attack. Yeah! Exactly. <laughs> to me, I'm like, I don't really know why it wasn't already. Um, but since he not only targeted female students directly, but also was trying to terrorize all feminists and all women. He was. This is one of those things where I'm like, Glad they seem to finally recognize that. Shouldn't have they recognized that in the fucking 80s? Oh, that was like when the big push happened. It took 10 years until December 6th, 2019. Oh. Yeah, yeah, recently. Oh, so like a month ago. Uh, Yeah, that was when the city of Montreal officially recognized it in those terms and they changed the wording on the commemorative plaque at the memorial um, to say that the women were murdered in an anti-feminist terrorist attack. That it wasn't just a shooting. Not that there is just a shooting, but this one had targets. motivation to terrorize and it had targets. Yeah, like it shocks me that it took them such a long time to recognize this as a terrorist attack on feminism because he was so blatant about that. Like, he yeah. never once hid that that was his motivation and his reasoning. And the fact that this took 30 years to be identified as that, I mean, I really struggle to understand why. Me too. And also, the why and that and that statement is fucking the epitome of this entire episode. Like, Agreed. me and you and everyone not understanding and not communicating. And I totally get why you said this was going to fire us up because, man, I'm pissed. Oh, it is fucking unbelievable. All of this. So, to close this case out. To this day, this is still the deadliest mass shooting in Canadian history. 
I don't, I'm at such a loss of words because I don't even know what else to say. So do you want to jump into postmortem? Let's, uh, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I think both of the cases that we selected have this very scary similarity. And and we discussed this in, in today's world. Both of these are things that could happen any day. And while I realize everything we talk about has a possibility of happening any day, and murders do happen every Mm -hmm. day, these are two topics or two cases based on the same topic that are things we can all try to be aware of because I just, I'm at such a loss of words because literally someone getting attacked while going to their car in a parking garage. I park in a parking garage every day. Yeah, same. People going to school and a mass shooter showing up, unfortunately, is turning into something that could happen any day. And so these horrific similarities honestly really break my heart. But yeah. when when we're comparing these two, um, with that similarity in mind, I will say I do think yours is the more intense because of the number of victims, the impact that it had on a community in a country and still being the largest mass shooting. No, I absolutely agree. And I mean, my case, it changed Canada forever. One thing about our cases, though, is I feel like mine is something that is very planned out. And when it happens is something that stops the news cycle that becomes global news in an instant. And one of the most horrifying things about your case is it happens every day all the time. Yeah. It's almost like mine is a more spur of the moment kind of crime where he got pissed at that instance and was just like, I'm going to make her pay for this. And yours, there was something brewing within him for a long time. And he decided to act on that. So... I... Honestly, this uh, postmortem is a lot closer than I thought it would be, but I do still think the intensity is going to your case. Yeah, no, and I I absolutely agree with you. Um on I think my case is one of the most intense cases I have ever brought. This was a crazy intense episode. I will pick our topic next week and it's also probably going to be crazy intense cuz they always are. They all are. But one thing that is I will say really inspiring that kind of feeds off this topic is there is a lot of change happening i think with our generation i'm so impressed with gen z and seeing the activism i mean when i did uh the shooting at stoneman douglas yeah and the entire march for our lives movement that is completely done by these gen z individuals it's very inspiring to me to see that, you know, I think every generation learns a lot from the one before it and the ones before it. Yeah, that's history. Yeah. And it it's very inspiring to see these social strides, the movements towards equality on a uh, gender scale, on a race scale, that it seems those younger than us are really fighting for and those our age they're i mean absolutely not to discount anyone from uh older generations that is fighting the fight but the societal shift i i can see it happening and i think it's really inspiring it is and 
things are pretty bad. A lot of things in history have gotten worse. Things have gotten better, but a lot of things have gotten worse. And I so much am inspired by the generations. Uh, I mean, like you were saying, especially Gen Z, the ones even younger than us. Like millennials, we're recognizing it, but Gen Z is taking action. And they're mm-hmm. doing anything they can to help prevent this. And I honestly think that is an attitude we can all strive to, no matter what generation you're in, no matter any of that, age, whatever. We can all mm-hmm. aspire to try to do something to make things better because, y'all, things are pretty bad. Things are bad, but also in the same breath, things are good. Things, things are getting better. Things are progressing. And let's keep pushing uh, forward. Yeah. Do, I don't know, do a good thing every day. Do one good thing that you can recognize, point out every day. And we're going to fucking change the world. And we're starting right now. We've started, but if you haven't started, start right now. It's never too late. Boom. And this is where the inspiring song comes in and the credits Love. start rolling, right? Totally. Take one step at a time. Um, so... <laughs> Thank you guys. That was Jordan Sparks. Yeah, great, great, great reference. Mm-hmm. So, y'all, thank you so much for listening. If you um, like this podcast, enjoy this episode, please be sure to go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love reading your reviews, and thank you so much for the five stars. Love you. Yes, thank y'all so much. Also, while you're checking out those reviews, giving us one if you haven't, make sure to like and follow us on social media. Uh, We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out our website. Check out our merch store. If you're like, God damn, I really want a blood wine shirt. Let me tell you, I have a t-shirt with our logo. It's in like the heather gray. It's one of the comfiest shirts I own. I love it. You damn right I wear my own merch. I'm that bitch. Buy yourself a comfy tea. Do it. And again, thank y'all so much. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.